that there is no residue signifies that there is no longer a signifier and a signified, no signified behind the signifier, no structural bar distributing them on either side. It also signifies that there is no longer a repressed agency beneath a repressing agency, as there is in psychoanalysis, no longer a latent beneath the manifest nor the primary processes playing hide and seek with the secondary processes. There is no signified of whatever sort produced by the poem, no more than there is a dream thought behind the poetic text, nor a signifying formula, nor any kind of libido or potential energy which somehow threads its way through the primary processes and would still testify to a productive economy of the unconscious. There is no more libidinal than there is a political economy, nor of course than there is a linguistic economy, that is to say, a political economy of language, because the economic, wherever it is, is based on the remainder. Only the remainder permits production and reproduction. Whether this remainder is that which is symbolically non-distributed and which re-enters commercial exchange and the circuit of commodity equivalents, whether this remainder is what is not exhausted in the anagrammatic circulation of the poem and enters the circuit of signification, or whether this remainder is quite simply the phantasm, that is to say, that which could not be resolved in the ambivalent exchange and death, and which for this reason is resolved as the precipitate of unconscious individual value, the repressed stock of scenes or representations which is produced and reproduced in accordance with the incessant compulsion to repeat. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is unconscious Welcome to this week's edition of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started today, just wanted to remind you guys that we have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a buck a month or leaving us a positive review on iTunes to help spread the word. And we are discussing chapter six of Jean Baudrillard's 1976 symbolic exchange in death. The extermination of the name of God is the chapter it's a, title. It's a pretty fucking badass it's chapter a, name. He does have some good chapter. Well, some good until this one, most of the great titles are like sub chapters. Like my death is everywhere. My death dreams sexualized death and deadly sex stuff like that right yeah um the extradition of the dead oh that's a good one i like that a lot. uh although the body or the mass grave of signs is kind of good but yes this chapter title is definitely the most interesting the extermination of the name of god as i said it sounds like a um like an indie black metal album title right it, it sounds very metal and that's what we're going to be trying to discuss with with you guys today. And it's all based on 
a book by Ferdinand de, de Saussure, who's mostly known for his general course in linguistics. And what's really interesting about that course is that he didn't write that course, right? It, it actually exists in at least two forms because it's, it's mainly his students taking like detailed notes of his lectures. So in a certain sense, the anagrams that he publishes in this little book, which I believe precedes the publication date by almost a decade of the publication date of the, the course, although I'm not sure when the course was given, but uh, it's not well known, at least on this side of the continent. I know that Starab John, John Starabinsky, which is the guy he relies on for an analysis of this, and this guy is a fucking tour de force in French studies, by the way. He's, he's written on Descartes, on Rousseau. He's just a, I mean, like, I know we, unless you're in comparative literature and French studies, like I was for a moment, you may not be familiar with his name, but he is a kind of fucking giant. So when Baudrillard is relying on him so much in this chapter to kind of give one, what he thinks is a biased an, uh, analysis of Saussure's anagrams, we shouldn't take that lightly. This isn't just a, a nobody. But Baudrillard will want to kind of use him as a foil for his, I don't know if controversial is the right words, but what he wants to say is like a kind of a radical reading of what Saussure finds in the anagrams, which we will discuss very shortly, just kind of setting up the initial launch pad for this chapter. I'm going to reveal my own ignorance a bit. Maybe you can help since you have... Uh... This is a, a sort of area of sort of quasi-interest for you would be the kernel that jumped out to me here was there was discussion about how ancient poetry had this more alliterative style or approach, which would be, I guess, somewhat different from what we consider rhymes in English, which I guess is sort of like not all poems rhyme, but I think this is right, like in terms of the, the structure of the ancient poetry and alliteration being, I guess, the primary mode of how that operated in terms of a form or something like that. Did you pick up on this at all? Okay, so what I got from this, and I've only glanced through Starobinsky's work, which I gleefully downloaded from Libgen instead of hunting it down in some obscure nook and cranny of, of a library. I kind of looked over it and, and, and tracked down some of the citations Sadly, they didn't align with the page numbers given in, in my book. Uh, so I kind of was just like randomly searching around. So what it seems like is the, the poems that, and Saussure will want to try to extend this to poetry as a whole. And Baudrillard also happily takes that up, which we'll get to in a minute. I guess should, Andrew, let me, yeah. I guess before you get too deep, I just want to throw this Please do. wrinkle into, because <laughs> it'll, it'll go to this. It's like. I guess a certain ignorance of how other languages utilize rhyme. Yeah. Uh, because there is a difference. Like it's not the way that I guess the way that we typically utilize rhyme, although not always is like at the, the final syllable of a, of a given word. Right. Yes. I think the reason why there might be some in rhymes in these anagrams and these verses are the ones that he provides are four to five or six words, which is almost the length of a 
haiku in, in our right. standards. Yeah. Uh, the, the rhymes are, are incidental, I think. Right. But I, but it does seem like Saussure points out that for the languages that at least he's looking at and, and he, I know that I think his dissertation work or one of his first books is on like the origins of Indo-European languages. So right. he may not have been like fluent in as many languages as Tolkien because Tolkien was, was a fucking a polyglot. He had familiarity with a dozen languages and, and mastery and at least half a dozen or more, probably eight or 10. I know that he would have had training in all kinds of languages, especially the old ones. But the language that the examples that we have from here are uh, from Latin, right? And Latin, the Romantic languages too, in general, because another, I know that one, he, he has one anagram that's in French, which is, is the only contrast. And I think it, it may not be. Yeah, I guess that is interesting because it, it is interesting because Latin is an inflected language, whereas English is not inflected to the same extent at least english is a bastard language it doesn't right. follow the declensions and yeah. conjugations that right. give exactly. a kind of regularity to latin and this is why um uh, which would wrong. that would sort of negate the well it doesn't fully negate it but like the sort of end rhyme scheme yeah. that an english you know what i mean because you have so many of those ready-made conjugated endings that are yeah that's uniform that's what, right exactly <laughs> already yeah, that's what, which kind of I guess doesn't make the like <laughs> there's no libidinal investment, I think, or a lower if we're using that kind of Freudian model of of um I guess language as expressing the joke or whatever is to release pressure, right? This kind of seismic uh-huh. approach to the unconscious or like yeah, the, the, law, the, the sort of law of th- thermodynamics approach mm-hmm. to the the unconscious in a kind of fractal way or sense. Right. I mean like the the joke both lifts the repressing agency of the superego for a moment, even if it, you know, puts it back down as Freud thinks almost immediately. Yeah. Which Baudrillard doesn't really even seem to take into account, but yeah, but you're right. There is a, uh, I mean, like Freud has a kind of thermodynamic energetic understanding of not only jokes, but also um, pleasure itself. Right. right. Or, 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 I mean, like his way of understanding happiness is actually intuitive, even if it may not, be something we reflect on every day, which is the fact that, you know, it's not happiness is actually the feeling of happiness. Let's say it's not necessarily a constant continuum, right? There are, but there are these, these great moments of, of joy and happiness that happen because of this, you know, this release of pressure, like you said, exactly. The unconscious is like a wave function, right? Yes, I think so. Or think, unconscious, think, like, I don't know if you're going to use that, like, a bar in between those or two to go to his kind of Caesarian model or not uh, in terms of Baudrillard. Yeah, I mean, I think that for Freud, the unconscious, as you said, I like that, this notion of almost like a sine wave. I mean, I've said it many times, too. It's like that uh, w- um, particles uh, crossing a a barrier. Uh, what is it? Uh, the membrane, right? Oh. You heat up one side of the water, right, with dye in it. And that water will flow to the other side. Same, like that's the kind of visual visualization. And the reason I even bring this up to you is because of specifically within the anagrams, one thing that's so important in the chapter is that there's um, at the end of the anagram, all of the consonants and the vowels are being accounted for and are being wiped out almost like a double, what is it, dual entry accounting for example or yes to continue the physics metaphor you know matter and antimatter when they interact they release energy but they also 
annihilate one another. The way that in the anagram, at least for Sister, because we'll get to how Baudrillard understands this annihilation. And each if I'm foul, jumping ahead, please. No, you're, you're not. I mean, like I, you're anticipating and I like it. Each vowel has to pair up and cancel out. So ideally, there will be an even number of vowels and an even number of consonants, right? So they pair up with the vowels. It looks like they may pair up directly with the consonants. I don't think they have to be exact pairs. So an R doesn't. But it, it, but there needs to be a there needs to be the same number of consonants in the verse line of five or six words. There needs to be the same number of vowels, and any remainder has to be canceled out in a following in a following line. The example he gives is one of the first examples is Tarasia Kizana Somnio Kepit, which in Latin doesn't really say anything too interesting by itself but spelled out across those four words is the name scipio which was like i believe a i believe he's a great general anyway yeah. he's a he's a hero right he's right so what what Sassur is interested in is how the hero's name or a god's name now the two examples he gives baudrillard gives is Scipio and Agamemnon. There's another line. I won't bore you with the Latin, but Agamemnon's name is spelled across six words and it's kind of like hidden in there. This doesn't just apply to heroes' names because one of the, and this is what he calls the theme word or later the anathema, which we'll have to get to, but the anagram is kind of giving a word that's not itself said in the verse, but can be read across the verse and parsed out like you're putting potentially uh it's it's like dismembered right as he kind of says like a god like uh osiris orpheus or the example i gave was dionysus right who's ripped apart by the by the mynads only to be yeah the the bacchanalia right stuff like that what is fascinating about this and you're right to get to your point about alliteration and assonance it does seem for Saussure that the majority of these little poemlets, these little anagrams function on, on assonance and alliteration. And I think that Latin has that function to do that better than we can do in English because we're a fucking bastard tongue. But he also says that it doesn't have to necessarily be alliteration or assonance. It could be any sort of phonemic harmony. And that's really what, I mean, alliteration and assonance are two of the most basic forms of that, right? In any case, because this seems very fucking esoteric, so yeah. stay with us. But I, we should yeah, maybe no. even just talk about what an anagram is. I confused palindrome with anagram. A palindrome can be an anagram. Uh, well, no, sorry, a palindrome. That's I was thinking of. You can reverse a word, right? If it's, that's what a palindrome it, is. Yeah, and some some reverse words actually form another word that. Uh, well, a reverse word, but palindromes can also be a, a whole string of sentences, right? Like there are these famous, long, interesting poems that are palindromes. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. So a palindrome doesn't have to be one single word. But if, a, if one word were a palindrome, it would spell itself the same way forward and backwards. And now, if you took a whole string of words, like in a poem, you mm-hmm. would end up with in the middle when the palindrome reverses, you would end up with a totally different string of words, which is why some of these some of these poems that are palindromes are very interesting, but in a certain way, they, they do function in a very similar way as, as this principle of, of pairing up, 
you have the poem going forward one way and then it starts at the end and goes backwards to a certain extent you have your pairs right in a palindrome poem you would have each letter perfectly mirroring each other and canceling itself out doesn't matter what it signifies and most of these palindrome poem poems are even if they're beautiful in a certain way that has nothing to do with what they mean they're almost these feats of inspiration or whatever you want to call it these feats of verbal you could call it verbal gymnastics but I think that Baudrillard would say that's reductive and maybe Sissou too. This is a broad question. Am, am I cutting you off? I don't want to cut you off in the middle of a thought. Either. No, I was I just going to get, stopping. <laughs> I was just going to get to the point of, uh, of no, what go, anagrams were. Yeah. Just go ahead and finish. I don't want to mess up your energy. It's just that um, if you look at my favorite website for language is Wiktionary. And one of the cool things they have at the bottom Wiktionary, they'll be like definition. And then below that, well, first it'd be like etymology, pronunciation, definition. And then below that, it'll be like synonym, antonym, anagram. Now, not every word has an anagram because not every word can have its letters rearranged to form another word. But that's basically what an anagram is. That, you know, words that can be anagrams of each other if they contain the same letters in, in a different arrangement. That's all. Gotcha. Which is why I think that Saussure hesitates between calling these anagrams or hypograms or antigrams, right? Because not all the letters to form the hero's names are, you get little pieces of them across the words. And it's only by focusing on a certain number of them that you get the name, the theme word of the hero or god at the end. Anyway, go with your question. I was going to ask if any in any way something like logic of sense has any purchase here even as a foil in terms of because i think right isn't Deleuze spending a lot of time looking at um lewis carroll yes and nonsense right yeah he is i don't know if that has a, if that just a question that popped up if there well, was any with, kind of productive dialogue that could be had or i mean where i would start and and we could start you could start in many ways to conjoin the the studies at least of carroll in the first 12 series of logic of sense with this this Caesarian anagram stuff, which would be that for Deleuze, logic of sense is an expression of his serialist philosophy or his his kind of experiment in serialism, even, which mm. I think for him, series are a fundamental component of structuralism. And so what we see in the in the little anagram verses, even in the four words that I just read you from Latin that spell out Scipio there's a series of words and it's across the series that there is a kind of resonance of certain of the letters to spell out the name. Mm -hmm. And they do come in linear order. So it does help a little bit to read. No, actually they don't come in linear order. I tell a lie. No, but it's by pulling out. It's funny because Starobinsky says it's kind of like the psychoanalytic Freudian way of approaching the clinical situation where in order to see the theme word of the hero or God come out, we should have an evenly suspended attention. Like how Freud said, right? Don't pay attention to any one word. This is why we're not, this is why the analysts can't be writing down specific things. Freud's advocating like this evenly kind of floating suspension that's kind of indifferent to the noise around it. So in a certain sense, the <laughs> The verse is kind of like collateral noise, just a vehicle to inscribe 
partially inscribe the name of the hero or God across this verse. And so in that sense, I think that logic of sense in its understanding of how series communicate, how they, how they disjoin, conjoin and connect based on these different elements, whether it be, you know, like the empty square or the, or this question of forcing a communication across series, what allows that to happen? I think that that's very relevant here. Yeah. I think I was thinking in terms of, nonsense nonsense asignification and i see poetic language exterminating value and so he says something about the form of the poem um yes that 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 those who try to and and we're anticipating again but this is this is going to be a big this is going to pay off what Baudrillard claims is that the readers of Saussure specifically Starobinsky but there are a couple of other readers of Saussure the anagrams specifically against their attempt to say that the Saussure's focus on poetics is actually just a supplement of linguistics. And Baudrillard's like, no, actually it subverts linguistics, which we'll have to get into more. It's because they seem to focus on the content of these verses, mm-hmm. right? Which would be the theme or the hero's name or the God's name. That would be like the content. Gotcha. And I think for him, Focusing on the content actually does a disservice to what's going on. That it's the form of the of these anagrams, it's the form of these little these little incantations that is important and that reveals what he finds to be what's going on, which is that the content of the name of the hero or the god doesn't mean anything. It's not a signified, right? It's not a hidden, it's not a latent signified, it's not some sort of additional linguistic meaning for him it is precisely this thing he's calling symbolic exchange that the name of god is sort of like partial objects it's it's distributed and diffracted like a beam of light across these words in order not to be recreated and reduplicated and reproduced but to be annihilated to be exterminated oh nice which goes to the one of the central motifs of the chapter is this story one of arthur c Clarke's stories about what was it the uh the monks that the nine, recite the nine yeah, billion names of god there's monks that are cloistered that are saying all the names of god in this very methodical way the meat of the what is it it's like a myth right that when they say the the final name of God, then God will be destroyed, and I guess that will bring about Armageddon. Well, the world, yeah, the, the world, world will be dest- destroyed, yeah, along with God and the self, you could say. You know, this is funny because there's a good visual for this in the movie, the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, where this is actually this is inverted. This whole situation is inverted, and it's once the priests or the monks stop chanting, that's when what brings about the apocalypse so as long as someone is repeating the story it's not the name of god it's a story it's a narrative so as long as the narrative is being repeated then the world continues on when it stops the world comes to an end and that actually makes sense with many creation myths right even like the biblical one where or well the new testament biblical one let me be clear right Right. Uh, although uh, in the Old Testament too, God says, "Let there be light." So it begins with a declaration. It begins with a an annunciation. In the beginning was the Word. Was also what I was thinking of. Right. Ah, uh, yes. It's, it's, you know, it's, the signifier. It's, 
Well, name yeah, of it's, God. It's the it's if not the signifier, the first because we don't know yet what it means. It's at least the uh, it's at least the enunciative act, the narrative act, if you will. Gotcha. Um, the union of doing and saying, or, or or you know, and saying and doing. So, what is interesting about so sir, and this focus on the anagram, Baudrillard makes this contention that. It doesn't matter if Saussure had this in mind, but what he shows is this revolutionary potential, this revolutionary potential for modeling a use of language, a specific use of language that's not under the dominance of linguistics, which for him is about the production of, of value, of meaning, of sense, of signification, but instead this poetic use of language that perfectly exchanges every phoneme, every every vowel, every consonant in such a way as to cancel and annihilate itself. That this is, because that's how he kind of understands symbolic exchange, even from these other chapters when he's starting with this analysis of uh, Marcel Mauss and this gift and counter gift. That there's a way in which Saussure shows that in language, in the poetic, in the good form of the poetic, as he says, there is this gift and counter gift that annihilates itself. And this for him, shatters the fundamental human laws of language. It subverts the signifier-signified relation. It subverts linguistics itself. It subverts value, right? Because there's no remainder. Right. It's a, it subverts a surplus too, right? It's just like the potlatch that works to, I guess, eliminate accumulation or minimize accumulation. Yes. This is the same logic being carried out via linguistics and now that we have basically we have this wealth quote-unquote wealth of signification we have less actual meaning kind of in the way that you know it's always lobbed at fiat currency right like you devalue the currency by printing more dollars it's kind of the same thing like there's an inflationary aspect to language that is sort of this proliferation of excess language beyond what is hmm i don't know how that works in terms of this either this uh you know, it'd be like a, a thermodynamic model or even an economic model I think by comparison. A, yeah, it's a proliferation of language. One thing I would slightly correct for you or against you is that it's not via linguistics, but against linguistics that Baudrillard is seizing upon Saussure's, what he's calling this radical use of language mm -hmm. that in fact subverts the dominant science of language. This okay. notion of the poetic. So it's it's via the poetic that linguistics has its downfall. And as we'll see, potentially psychoanalysis too, and in Baudrillard's estimation, political economy, I I have my doubts. I find his inspiration interesting because this chapter kind of sheds light on everything that came before. I do have this contention that I wish it were the first chapter the opening chapter, <laughs> beginning with this as the model and then following everything up. And maybe even chapter one could come last, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's, it's how he chose to write the book and compose it and to end in this way. I think that the way he ends the book forces, at least in my mind, a reread from the beginning. Maybe that was intentional because that would imply what we were saying about the palindrome, about the reversible, whether it be the reversible word or the reversible poem. I mean, for 
Baudrillard reversibility is a aspect of symbolic exchange because for him reversibility means a sort of mirroring annihilation this mm-hmm. pairing up right i had a harder time linking this to the prior chapters to be quite honest the anagrams seem to be kind of just not a very exciting or like you know it's kind of like getting to this chapter like oh, okay anagrams all right where you know poetic language is annihilates value you know that sounds great but i don't know that he really succeeds in what the implications are i guess i would have liked to see maybe another chapter i don't get his critique of of psychoanalysis and linguistics those are the like sort of confusing elements of it or things that just don't grab my attention right i i would say that with the anagram there's two things that i would focus on out of the myriad of things that he's (laughs) trying to argue but first is in the poetic, as he's talking about, in Saussure's form that he gives us of a certain type of poetics, what we see is a type of incantatory device and this ritualistic, i.e. symbolic use of language, right? This ritualistic use of language that isn't about accumulating or producing meaning. See, this is where I think asignification is this sort of thread to Guattari but I don't know. Maybe I just have a shitty understanding. I'll let you yeah, comment I mean, on that with, if you want. With Guattari, question of asignifying semiotics would be linked here in a sense in which he doesn't explore himself, but in a sense in which he covertly sort of potentially aligns with Baudrillard in the sense that for Baudrillard in the anagram, insofar as the name of God is, is dispersed throughout the, the poem, And in its dispersal, it is only brought to light in the theme word, what he calls the anathema, which is both this consecration and this sacrifice that what the, what the God being conjured up across the lines, it's, it's so as to put it to death. And it's in that putting to death that he sees also linked to this putting to death, the name of the father like in Lacanian sense. Yeah, and yeah. Therefore, and Which he even the, brings up, I think. Yeah, he does. And therefore, and therefore the law, as Lacan uses it, right? The sort of the domain of the big other. Yeah. And, and so this extermination implies, first and foremost, the extermination of the signifier, right? And any potential signified. Because he makes this clear, too, that the poetic is different from like automatic writing. Because there's a way in which you could just have monkeys typing mm-hmm. and there could be no, you could eliminate signifieds in that way where there's no necessary conceptual substance to it. But that doesn't give us the, what, what he's saying is the radical exterminating value or not value, the radical exterminating uh, form of the poem, because the signifier too has to be dismantled along with the signified. And I think that that's why he's saying against these readers of Saussure that the theme word, the anathema, the name of God is not this hidden, latent, signified. It's actually, it's not more meaning as though we could suspend our, because he, he critiques this notion of suspending our reading attention. And then, hey, the name of God pops out at us in this, these poems. For him, it's not more meaning and therefore a residue a final residue out of all these canceling things out. In fact, the canceling in the verse implies or demands the same type of cancellation of the name 
of the name of God, of, of God himself, right? He, he's kind of performing with this use of language and poetics, the hailing of the death of God by Nietzsche, which is why Nietzsche's name shows up throughout this work. And one time he shows up negatively, which is linked to psychoanalysis, which I'll try to get back to. I think where he aligns with Guattari is that, you know, Guattari with asignifying semiotics isn't necessarily looking at, uh, he's not necessarily looking at words themselves or to a certain extent, he wants to escape from language and show that the domain of semiotics and science particles and all these other things have been either annexed by linguistics in a way that is unfair just to be kind of otherized, or they've been completely ignored. And I think that Baudrillard is doing something similar too by saying linguistics is trying to say, you know what, poetics or, or poetry is, is actually just a kind of a supplementary dimension of linguistics because it gives us more meaning, right? It's, it's this supplementary dimension or information theory saying, you know, poetry is effective and affective because it's unexpected, right? Because in information theory, the expected uh, letters or words like E or the don't have a lot of information value. It's the unexpected that has a lot of information. And Baudrillard puts both of those against what he's saying is, but that's only within the domain that we assume the theme word, the anathema, means anything as though to add value to, to expression and to add value to the infinity of the production of linguistic value. So he, he and Guattari both say linguistics and linguists are, are imperialists. They keep extending their domain to the point where they end up in this parody of Derrida, where there's nothing outside the text, there's nothing outside language or something in this kind of you know, semiological idealism. Which so, is kind of interesting because yeah. I was wondering as well if there, because he does mention deconstruction gets some play in this chapter. And I was thinking too about our discussion, uh, the cryptonomy and the, mm -hmm. the yeah. what was it, the Wolfman's secret word? Yes, yes. And I was feeling like maybe there was some uh, a connective thread there as well, but I couldn't quite close the this, loop on if there is, was or if I would just, you know, kind of yeah. cobbling yeah, this, this together. This is, really this is really good because in cryptonomy and the Wolfman's magic word, and, you know, um, Torok and Abrams, Abraham, they do a great job of sort of reading across several languages these. Oh, yes, yes, yes. These almost primordial signifiers and signifieds that get scrambled across languages. Problem is, and Baudrillard actually points this out, what he would say is with cryptonomy, with the cryptogram, there's a sense in which there's a perverse pleasure in finding out the code how to break the code. And really what Abraham and Turok are doing is finding the right key or formula to break the code to the meaning of the wolf man's neurosis, psychosis, whatever you want to call it, the meaning of the construction of his little crypt. They're trying to find the key to unlock that and they do a great job. But for Bojar, that's a kind of perverse pleasure that is still under this dominance of meaning, of production of meaning, of value. It's still under this dominance of psychoanalytic behind. And this is where they cite Nietzsche. This is where Baudrillard cites Nietzsche negatively, 
right? Where he says like, I think he quotes Nietzsche and it's something like, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, like pay attention to the words that are spoken or written because behind them, there is this enforced silence. And Baudrillard makes clear that that is the domain of psychoanalysis, that um, it is, instead of the signifier signified, the precedence becomes like manifest, repressed, or like spoken and repressed. But that for him is still this search for, for a sort of hidden sig- signify that would, that would correspond to a signifier or, or, the, yeah. or even uh, <laughs> hidden signifiers that would form a chain. And I think that for him, that's still within the regime of production, of a production of, of value. It implies a residue, implies yeah. these traces. And so as opposed to the kind of perverse cryptogram, he's giving us the anagram or antigram, the anathema, the extermination of the name of God. That's kind of, he means that literally too, right? He's uh, yeah. I was going to say break down the whole because an- anathema has its own significance beyond just its own meaning, right? Anna, well, like, anath- annihilation, right? Like, is isn't that incorporated within the the anathema? Like, it's not just anathema on its own, right? There's kind of a double entendre at work. Yeah, anathema like. implies there's a wealth of meaning. There's a multiplicity. Yeah, yeah anathema anathema implies in its roots that something is devoted, that something is consecrated. But it also means something is sacrificed. And so we can think of like a scapegoat, for example. Nice. Or the, the animal sacrifice that, that sort of... Yeah. The or, kind of or even, the, or even bur- burning an effigy and stuff like this, right? To go along with the, with the, the putting to death of either the criminal or whatever. But anathema too means, I mean, literally it, it has to do with excommunicating. That's what we think about it in religious right. terms. But in, but in his sense, the communicating has to be understood as the vehicle communication, the, the usage of, of language, right? And the very means by which language produces value. So yeah, anathema, anathema is this, is this putting to death, right? It is this sacrificing, this conjuring the hero or the God's name to burn it and thereby to fully resolve without residue. It's very akin to what you said earlier about potlatch, about these feasts or these, you know, as Bataille studies, these great expenditures, these great wastings. But that has to be put in context, right? Because for for Baudrillard, waste still implies there's something left over. It's as though the the waste in its wasting were also annihilated, where sort of nothing remains of it. No leftovers. Yeah, like the (laughs) antimatter and matter canceling one another out, extinguishing each other. I'm just thinking in terms of thermodynamics, heat is released whenever that Energy is released whenever that occurs. A large amount of it, yeah. You know, it's a very powerful reaction. So I'm wondering what the fuck is he saying? Like his critique of libidinal economics and this thermodynamic model of desire and and pressure and release that, I don't know, seems very like the Freudian shit he's critiquing seems pretty plausible. I don't know (laughs) what he's like suggesting otherwise. 
I think his problem here, and this is where, yeah, I, I'm glad you pointed in on this, right? Where he he likens the symbolic exchange, the kind of reciprocal reversibility and, and extermination. He likens this to the sort of collision of a particle and an antiparticle, which has this fabulous energy to it. For him, this in the symbolic exchange, in the gift and the counter gift, or the anathema, right? The extermination of the name of God, et cetera. There is for him a fabulous enjoyment. And he rigorously distinguish, distinguishes the enjoyment of this annihilation of this like, symbolic exchange like the with, tweet. <laughs> I'm with the thinking. perverse pleasure, with the perverse pleasure of the cryptogram, which is seeking more, just seeking more meaning rather than, than being content with nothing. Sometimes a tweet is like, it is this sort of, it's a burst, right? It's like a, um, I don't know, there's a topological, there's a pressure. What does a shitpost mean, right? It doesn't mean anything. It's not about the meaning of that specific, of those specific words or the phrase exactly. It's the form kind of like Baudrillard. I, mean, I don't know if that's aligned with what he's exactly saying, but it's it's not the specifics of the tweet that really matter it's the affect of it it's like the form of me tweeting is doing something what is that doing it's releasing i'm getting a jouissance i'm getting something from doing that otherwise why would i continue to do it if that makes sense yeah i you know i like see even him, though there is I, I, it is a nonsense right like it's a certain it's nonsensical right i'm not really communicating any information yes. yeah. in the typical model that one would think I think you're right. I I think you're right on that. I think you're right on that part. It it kind of also functions as a joke, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think it's sort of, I don't know, it's on that like boundary between this sort of like pressure, this sort of thermodynamic model of release. And ah, fuck, I don't even know if I can think of the other, (laughs) the other side I was thinking of. I'll have to come back to it if I can remember. The lifting of the repressing agency of the superego that expects meaning, that expects a logical, linear, you know, coherent signifier and signified to have some sort of, you know, ideal relation. Yeah. Okay. So I guess to the other- the logic of, of normal everyday language. At the same time though, right? Doesn't that proliferation, that production of nonsense, doesn't that contribute to this excess that Baudrillard is sort of against right like he wants everything to go back to this symbolic annulment all the terms have to be annulled at the end like everything has to revert back to zero yep but it's like he's wanting it both it feels like he wants it sort of both ways i don't know how he's responding like i said against this critique of the thermodynamic model i've been been using two things one is that was exactly what i was going to say after what we had just discussed about the shit post and its meaning or not is that he defines the problem of societies and their imminent death as their production of waste so there's a certain sense which the shit post names itself very literally right as this waste wasteful product. right yeah yeah and for Baudrillard, whether or not we agree with this claim, especially with the rise of climate change and whatnot, the the overproduction real of waste, waste, the real waste, the real overproduction isn't industrial; it, it's linguistic. And you know, to be charitable to, to Baudrillard, I would phrase it differently. Perhaps the linguistic overproduction, the freedom to language, unlike the freedom of speech that we have in America, or whatever. But this freedom of just saying whatever it is is the model upon which. 
the political economy of of the production of value of the of the surplus of the production of surplus value finds a model finds at least an analogy so the ship post is the that leftover it's the question too though if that i would raise to bojard whether or not it also points to this third way where it is this unincorporable remainder and i think that for bojard that's how he has it both ways that's how he straddles the bar if you will, in the sense in which Leotard talks about to distinguish this from that in this disjunctive mode, you have to be straddling both sides. Yeah. Right. And I think that the way Baudrillard does that is that it's precisely the fact that the indivisible remainder that is incorporable is precisely at the same time that which prevents symbolic exchange. And that which actually leads to surplus. But mm. it's hard to say whether it accumulates or not with anything yeah. else. Right. Baudrillard thinks that it does, at least in its general form, it does, even if there are exceptions that prove that rule. You know, and, and your thing about, uh, to get back to your thing about thermodynamics and energetics, because he does seem to fall back into this metaphor of, well, the particle and the antiparticle cancel each other out, just like the letters in a fucking anagram do they cancel each other yeah, out the exactly. name of god is canceled out and it's in this canceling of the name of god that we have this immense enjoyment because it's only in the death of god that we can even begin to enjoy instead yeah, of having exactly. these perverse little pleasures that are right right doled out to us but as you said he also points out that this freudian energetic model of the unconscious is the model of value of capitalist accumulation blah 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 my thing is what he seems to to me this seems more like symbolic exchange than <laughs> he no, but but, his... but 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 his problem with the, the with the thermodynamic model, the inner the energetic model of Freudian is not the is not itself the as he says the fabulous energy. It's the fact that Freud talks about, for example, repression, and we've covered this in our podcast several times in the Freudian podcast, which there's a playlist for if you guys are interested in more of this stuff. But Freud talks about repression mm -hmm. and undoing repression. As a good thing, because right. Zizek sometimes says, enjoy your symptom, whatever. But for Freud, there is this immense expenditure of energy to keep the repression coming from the pre-conscious and the forepression coming from the unconscious or whatever, right? There's two, the, the two layers are, are trying to kind of protect consciousness. Yes, it's, right. It's, but there's this immense amount of expenditure in keeping repression intact. And so right. for him, in undoing repression... We save energy. We save psychic, the, the psychical system would save so much energy if repressions could be unwoven. If those. Yeah. And so this those, is what leads Reich to his, gets him, that's the little nugget that gets him going, I think, right? Yeah. And then Reich also tries to find that. <laughs> right. Yeah. The oh, sort of. Uh, in the world, the, the organ. Yeah. The little, the puff of smoke or whatever, the, the residue hit, perhaps. But that, that's what Baudrillard doesn't like in that. And, and, yeah. and repression is just one example of Freud using this notion of saving of energy. Because for Baudrillard, it's precisely this tendency to want to save energy that uh, indicates a kind of uh, capitalistic, right, political, right. economical, yeah, 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 okay. an, a, a, an economical view of the psychical apparatus that yeah. it's precisely this notion of saving industry or saving in energy that 
tells the lie to this mode of value. Okay, now that brings it home. Yeah. Okay, so it's a far more like a Nietzschean, Nietzschean sort of vibe, almost. Maybe. I mean, he he obviously has a Nietzschean vibe in this chapter, you know. And I think for Baudrillard, with the particle and antiparticle slamming into each other in a mm-hmm. particle accelerator, and the fam- the fabulous energy that is emitted, I think that for him, even if we can imagine harnessing it like with cold fusion or some shit i think for him that this is an event that takes place for no one for nothing and it's that is where the enjoyment is because it's not about saving that energy see this is where he could link up with maybe this is where graham Harmon links up with baudrillard which i did actually pick up i kind of got a little bit of some stuff here when he was talking about the <laughs> real but i think this i don't know what are you what are your thoughts on that oh, with Harmon. just about i think like objects themselves I get, you know what I mean? Because he did make that statement about the, you know, maybe humans aren't the stuff of politics. I would say with Harmon, one of the places, and this is just something I didn't fully reflect on. And, but one of the places I would say with Harmon is that what's interesting about the anagram as he analyzes it, as Baudrillard analyzes it, insofar as it conjures the name of God in a dismembered form just to put it to death, Mm -hmm. is that for him, the poet, say, who, potentially wrote these anagrams, however many there were, or or even if there were only one, is not the subject of the poem. Nor is God, or the name of God, the object of the poem. In fact, subject and object are canceled out just as much as the signifier and the signified, whatever. It's language itself that cancels itself out. And its own dualism, right? And and it's it's kind of Kantian or... Or I guess Descartes, Descartes. I suppose what I was thinking was more was more of the fact that this is not a this is where it becomes interesting because it's not really a subject or object oriented revolutionary poem itself demands the extermination of, of both in what it conjures it demands the object and subject it kind of as he says if the poem. And the anathema, this extermination of the name of God, et cetera, is pointing towards anything and pointing towards something. It's like nothing, as he says. It, is, it is this nothingness. The so language, <laughs> language exchanges itself so as to put itself to death. Ooh. I think that that's something that's fascinating for me. Yeah. That's a very that, poetic statement too, of its own that, volition. And that maybe then... There is a sense in which it's withdrawn from the circulation and accumulation of value. So, so insofar as objects withdraw, not from us, but also not just from us, but also from other objects, there's a sense in which that's not itself an accumulation, but that it is this, you know, the, the as Heidegger says, like the nothing nothings, right? There is a sense in which it's this radical extermination of ambivalence, right? As Baudrillard keeps saying, this is, the anagram shows ambivalence. It's the dual pairing up of these, of each syllable, of each phoneme, insofar as in the ambivalence, they are not duplicating each other or mirroring each other in any sort of way that would double. It's like two waves that mirror each other. They cancel out, right? Yeah. I think that that's kind of how I think about it in a physics-like example. Yeah. Two, two, like you're uh, EQing out a frequency too. Like you play yes. with the sliders to negate that frequency or repress that frequency even yes one might yeah say. i think i think that's a great that's a great kind of 
um, acoustics metaphor to go along with, with the language, if we're using this as a metaphor, an analogy for what he is saying is symbolic right. exchange. You know, I was even thinking this goes back to symbolic exchange and death in particular in the way that, you know, I'm thinking about the myth of the marathon runner, you know, right? He he runs the 26 miles to deliver the message, and upon delivering the message, he dies, right? Yep. So in that sense, so the logic of <coughs> accumulation, right, versus the logic of expenditure, and I guess even one might say, I don't know, how would you, what's the word? Like an exaltation, almost? An so exaltation sort of, or an exaltation? An exalt. In my 26-mile run marathon, like, I've expended, I've reached a level of libidinal, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm highly libidinal. Point. Yeah, I'm like, I've exhausted my entire store of energy to the extreme, right? And I've lived my life has become this very, in, like the intensity of my affect is incredibly high, right? Rather than, you know, we've talked about this relative to that master slave dialectic throughout the book of buying little chunks of death. <laughs> this is like the immediate, my immediate death. My immediate death is the only thing to, that is able to equal as a counter gift to the gift given by the state or whatever. So in that same manner that the the antimatter and the matter particles cancel one another out, this is the canceling out of the marathon man, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. There's the sense in which for Baudrillard, natural death is kind of already predetermined and prescribed in the code, in the system's code. And so it doesn't have symbolic effectiveness. Right. Yes. There's a sense in which the accident is a hundred times more symbolically effective. And yet at the same time, statistically, it can be accounted for and many times is accounted for. This is actuarial science and and this the gambling of insurance companies. Then there's the terroristic taking of hostages and the killing of hostages, which is even a hundred times, and this is his, this is kind of his math, but it's not meant to really signify any unit. It's even a hundred times more symbolically effective than the accidental death, which was already a hundred times more symbolically effective than the natural death. There is this sense in which what we'll see later, and Baudrillard did in the first chapter hint at this, but he becomes really fascinated with this logic of terrorism oh, yeah, yeah. in the 80s, 90s, and even the early aughts after 9-11, and this notion that we are all terrorists, we are all hostages, which I think is both in itself a kind of provocative statement that he wants to make. And at the same time, it's the only way of getting to this maximal sort of peak of symbolic exchange. Right. It's precisely in that, in that ambivalent extent to which we are both. It's kind uh, of interesting because like, in a sense, there is a sense in which we can't give the 9-11 terrorists a counter gift that would annul their gift. We no. can, even though we, you know, we did Iraq, we did Afghanistan, all those atrocities don't have the symbolic exchange, the wealth of symbolic exchange contained within 9-11 on their side, on the side of the hijackers. It is ambiguous, which isn't the same as ambivalent. And Baudrillard, you know, says that 
for information theory and for linguistics, ambiguity is a function of poetry because it heightens the meaning because there, there's a whole dissemination. There's a whole, there's a whole plethora of meaning to be gotten out of ambiguity. But for, but for him, that actually enhances the accumulation of value. Right. I would say that yeah. there a is wealth, a wealth of interpretations. Th- there an, is just as an example, like the very language we yes, use to, towards th- it. Th- exactly. There is an ambiguity in say the wars because you're right. There's no way to symbolically exchange with the terrorists. First of all, they annihilated themselves. And if we're just using 9-11, they right. annihilated themselves in the very act. Yeah. So one can't exchange with them. So one chooses another target. There is a sense in which, on the other hand, it's trying to create a, in another sense, a symbolic, a nationalistic, jingoistic value. Right. If it can't get even with them, it can use it to stir up a symbolic jingoism on our side, which in itself is a kind of accumulation. It's accumulation of value of the of this of It's a reactive force. Yeah. To uh, yes, yes, term. yes. It is this accumulation of reactive forces of the citizenry for the state's benefit. We all know, and this isn't to go into conspiracy theories about whether Bush wanted to get back for his daddy and blah, 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 or even that he wanted to see his approval rating rise. But we know the correlation post 9-11 with the approval ratings shooting through the roof for our symbol head of the president. In any case, this is why we'll have to, at some point, jump into some of his later works like the agony of power, the spirit of terrorism, things like this. But yeah, I, I guess that would be the the question would be it's precisely this putting to death of the God. It's precisely this death of God, the putting to death of the particle with the anti-particle that for Baudrillard comes enjoyment. And I think that what's crazy about enjoyment, even in the Lacanian sense, is that unlike pleasure in the Freudian sense, which we've already discussed, is this buildup of tension and release. It's in the release of tension that pleasure comes. So it is about this sine wave that we talked about. Mm -hmm. With enjoyment, it doesn't seem like it's about that kind of economic model. I know it's counterintuitive because a lot of times we conflate, at least in English and everyday language, enjoyment and pleasure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I definitely do. But I think for Baudrillard, the pleasure is perverse insofar as it is part of this logic of this economic model. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure. I think that for him, enjoyment can't be subsumed back into the production of value. That for him is a major stake that he wants to, he wants to radically differentiate pleasure and, and enjoyment. Whether or not he does, he does a good job of making that clear. We can always be, uh, be suspect of that, but, that's at least his, uh, I'm trying to find where it is. And of course, he'll even bring up the discourse of science, that the discourse of science is this perverse pleasure of the accumulation of, of knowledge and therefore power, whereas the poetic does not lead to this, right? It is, it does not sort of, does not lead to this, this kind of accumulation of effectiveness. If there is any effectiveness, it's in its very putting to death of the, of the sign itself. What do you think about this going back to our, the Arthur C. Clarke about the 
I guess we didn't even finish the whole story because there was not only the element of the monks saying the name, the 9 million names of God, but also the American company that develops the technology to speed this process up. Yeah, this computer algorithm that can calculate all the names of God in a few months rather than it taking. One of the notes I thought was really interesting because he says the humor in this story is so successful because if there's one thing on which the inscription of death has not taken, where the death drive is barred, it's in cybernetic systems, which I thought was kind of interesting. The way I took this and I tried to do a little bit of research that became very technical very quickly. (laughs) Yeah. But this notion of cybernetic systems and the death drive that Bogiard finds in the story a kind of humor as though this were a kind of comedy of errors, one could say, right? That there's been this huge misunderstanding about what the, uh, what the eventuality of saying the, the names of God would lead to and having a computer program figure this out. I think that if I understand where he's coming from, I'm not so sure if he's thinking about how cybernetic systems are, say, related to entropy and actually have a kind of inverse relation to entropy. Oh, interesting. Rather than what we would think of as more natural systems. Hmm. They, in that sense, they kind of have a, they have a reverse relation to the death drive. um, One could say, but you know, since I'm not an expert in this area and don't want to just blow smoke up everyone's ass, <laughs> I would say that I think for him, the reason why the death drive is barred in cybernetic systems is because he sees cybernetic systems as the latest scientific model of what he is describing as this dominance of the code, right? And it's, it's not through the dominance of the code that one is going to extinguish value and one is not going to exterminate the name of God and therefore the world itself through the dominance of the code. You know, I think that for him, the symbolic exchange poetry itself, as he says, good poetry, because he'll want to distinguish bad poetry, which has these remainders and it's just, it's actually clumsy. It's actually trying to mean something. Right. But, I think that he's trying to say that the dominance of the code is, is what propels our societies to ceaselessly and potentially infinitely produce value and to produce surpluses in all aspects of our life, linguistically, economically, or you know, capitalistically, psychically, right? Yeah, because he's using the primacy of exchange as like the, so it's <coughs> like you're, you're sort of default, like you, you're forced to exchange and doing so by if you're not using this sort of potlatchy symbolic exchange that nullifies the excess, that's what he doesn't want. He doesn't want us. It's almost like this is fucking he's almost very anprim mm. here, like in a sense. Every episode, we have to kind of think about Baudrillard's nihilism and its type of active nihilism. Now, in, in Nietzsche, there is a symbolic exchange of nihilism because in the dark night of nihilism, nihilism confronts itself actively and thereby extinguishes itself, which, which 
is what accounts for the greatest affirmation and the greatest joy. One could say the greatest enjoyment is in this cancellation of nihilism by itself. Yeah. I don't know if Baudrillard uh, considers that or would consider that to be appropriate for his model, but I would, I would put that forward as if Baudrillard, perhaps Nietzsche is too optimistic for Baudrillard, I think. Yeah. Could be. Right. I think that for, for Baudrillard, nihilism has not become active enough yet to to truly face off against itself and defeat Hmm. itself and this is why he comes off as more nihilistic than that seeing nihilism through to its end Nietzsche was kind of leaping over the we could say the kind of dialectical spiraling canceling out and foreseeing the conclusion of when the dark night of nihilism is kind of gone through and active nihilism confronts itself active. The active forces of nihilism confront the reactive forces, which always seem to be the dominant ones. It's always right. seems like yeah. the reactive forces are the, are the ones that it's like the loudest, craziest of each political party is, is usually taken as the figurehead. And right. I think the Baudrillard, it's like, you know, I'm not as optimistic that we've already done this. I think <laughs> we're still in the midst of, of this. And that's where I would, and I've vacillated on this because a lot of times I'm like, I'm like, man, he says he's not a nihilist, but I think he is. But I think this is kind of where my position is now. And, and it, it accounts for my frustration with reading him insofar as I don't always know if this is the right interpretation, but I think that Baudrillard's like, yeah, we haven't seen anything yet. We got to be more actively nihilistic. Hmm. And in order to get to that, that great, fabulous energy of enjoyment of the of nihilism and of active reactive forces playing off against each other not going through hegel but or not going around hegel but through hegel possibly i mean what not not specifically but like you know what i mean yeah in a joking fashion yeah i mean for nietzsche when active forces and reactive forces meet one is dominating and one is dominated. And, you know, when reactive, reactive forces win by turning active forces against themselves and turning them reactive and producing the sad passions and all this shit. Yeah. You know, I just don't know if Baudrillard thinks it's wise to see Nietzsche's vision as already accomplished. I think he sees that as the promise, Yeah, perhaps, in this you know, when nihilism annihilates itself, that's when we can have the greatest joy. And there wouldn't even be a we around, right? We could really just <laughs> say that, that the nothingness would enjoy itself or would just enjoy without object. It's when he's talking about Kristeva in here and he refers to her notion of a zero logical subject, this kind of Buddhistic, on the model of a kind of Buddhistic way. And Nietzsche turns against that for his own reasons because he thinks that's, that is uh, exhaustion towards life. I think that this is why Baudrillard avoids that notion of exhaustion or even avoids this notion of a nirvana, right? Where we have to get off the wheel of suffering. You know, when he's talking about our immediate violent death, I don't think he's talking about getting off the wheel of suffering and escaping from desire. That's very foreign to his brand of nihilism. We get to go into this. That was kind of interesting where the bit about laughing at your own jokes. Yeah, that, you know, you tell a joke and you're the first to laugh at it. There's a way in which you've already foreclosed and killed any way to have symbolic exchange. It's a way to disrupt the social bond. You had the 
disjunctive imperative for the hunters of the Giyaki to not eat their own kill. I think that's a great analogy. Exactly. You don't eat your own kill. You share it out with, with the community. And symbolically, in the symbolic exchange, you are provided for in turn by hunters who don't eat their own kill. So yeah. it strengthens the social bond. And that's... Prohibition that's, of incest as well. Similar logic works, Yes. Right? Yes. So Baudrillard's kind of saying that symbolic exchange is important because it is the very foundation and strengthening of the social bond. That's why he refers to we Westerners are naive to think that, you know, quote unquote, primitive societies were always prostrate in front of their gods when in fact they most likely only summoned them to kill them off, which I think is, again, we don't really have empirical evidence to prove that, but as a thought experiment, as a way of thinking through the further implications of the anagram, of the theme word, of the anathema, and this sacrificing of God, I think that that's, that's interesting. I was thinking back to maybe clusters and like the chief too, because there seemed to be a connection to the way God was treated, at least in his model, and the way that the chief sort of had, you know what I mean? No one would really listen to the chief. There's a certain ambivalence towards the yes. chief and that same ambivalence towards the deity perhaps yes. has some kind of relationship relative to his critique of Lacan and the law of the father, name of the father, name of God, etc. It wasn't necessarily that the people wouldn't always listen to the chief. It's that during his ceremonial functions every day, when he's kind of giving the exhortations to be like our ancestors, if we just live in, in harmony like they did, if we continue on, you know, things will be good. And there, it's interesting that he is chief precisely because of his ability his to power, speak, right? his ability with words. But when he's doing his ceremonial ritualistic duties, he's not saying anything they haven't heard. So really, he's not saying anything with any meaning. It is a kind of symbolic exchange. They mm -hmm. ignore him and he kind of gives the pep talk. But then on the other hand, when there are conflicts, it does seem like he can only remain chief insofar as he's able to be a kind of peace broker and a mediator. A mediation, his function then is precisely to mediate and provide pathways for symbolic exchange between conflictual groups. And it's precisely insofar as conflict hasn't reached an appropriate means of resolving itself, that there is remainder, and that remainder is the threat to, to the social balance. Right. right. And of course, dead labor is tied up in there too, right? Because he also yeah. brings up some interesting like parallels <clears throat> to dead labor and like the dead labor of language. Yeah. Like there's all these, this proliferation of language sort of haunts us the way that dead labor haunts us as well. And making, drawing that analogy between those two things, even so far as to go with the falling rate of profit. I called it the falling rate of signification in my head to yeah. kind of align with that, that metaphor. Yeah, he talks about it as the falling rate that more and more signification has to be produced to counteract the falling rate of communication. I think that's kind of how he, he puts it. But you're right to point that out, that he makes this he makes this correlation with political economy, that insofar as communication is this surplus, this profit. Now, there is a primacy to this exchange, right? This is where maybe he does have some relevance or 
is right on in terms of the primacy of exchange because even within you know communication like we're exchanging something like we sort of have to the base level is exchange in a sense for there to be a social because we've got to exchange something we've got to exchange instructions i don't know the way that i understand his tendency to castigate to denigrate communication mm-hmm. which Deleuze on in his own way does too right because Deleuze sees linguists more and more relying on a definition of language that is about communication and for him that is actually sort of ass backwards for Baudrillard yeah. I think communication is also wrongly attributed certain aspects by linguists, but in another sense. For him, communication, like with uh, Roman Jakobson, the famous linguist, you know, one of the most famous linguists, who, who he takes the task here and elsewhere, it's precisely insofar as there is this privileging of the sender of the message over the addressee, right? There are these little privileges in communication that is, in fact, in a certain sense for him, a kind of product of the code, right? That the sender yeah. has has prevalence, has activity. So I think that's why for him, communication is kind of like profit, as though there were this hylomorphic model of um, of an active and passive or as a master slave. Yeah, okay. And that there could be no symbolic exchange between master and slave. The, yeah, okay. They're not equivalent. You know, the, the way that that could be exchanged is your you know your freedom or your life when there is that head-to-head battle of recognition the slave doesn't give up his freedom or gives up his freedom along with his life in this symbolic conflagration right that seems to be what Baudrillard is kind of arguing right in the master-slave dialectic the lord and bondsman that's what it used to be called there's the bondsman doesn't doesn't allow himself to be taken right? Kind of Mel Gibson in face paint crying out, they'll never take our freedom, so we'll give them our lives, right? That kind of seems what Baudrillard's saying uh, interesting. writ large, if the master is understood as like the code, right? The system's code. I like that. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good read. We could just jump to the end of the chapter. And he seems to be, again, he kind of points out that there's been this tendency, and he's right, there's been this tendency, at least in France, for synthesizing or complementarizing Freudianism and Marxism. And that, in fact, this is impossible. They are their own separate critical fields and cannot enter into a kind of, they can't enter into a kind of symbolic exchange. It doesn't work. It leads to a kind of absurdity. And what he kind of seems to be indicating is that like linguistics, they are also imperialists, except that he says that Freudianism seems to reduce phenomena that normally wouldn't seem to be under its purview into its own language and conceptual system. And he says that the Marxism does the same thing, right? But he seems to want to see them, if possible, sort of give each other hell if they can't be synthesized and sh- shouldn't be synthesized or contaminated, they shouldn't just be mixed together. What better to see them do than to, than to fight it out. Right. He says, we must not be deprived of this spectacle. And he says, they're both in crisis. I think there's a sense in which anti-Oedipus is, doesn't necessarily say it like this, 
But I do think that there's a sense in which that's very consonant with, with anti-Oedipus, mm-hmm. that Freudianism specifically is in crisis. And it's only implied that Marxism is in crisis insofar as they are trying to provide it with a kind of analytic machine that it seems to be lacking, which is why they call it schizoanalysis and not neo-Freudianism or something, right? So I think here, this way of ending, I'm not sure if this was his vision or not, but it's precisely here in this way of ending that he is able to complete the trilogy, looking backward at Anti-Oedipus from 72, Libidinal Economy by Leotard from 74, and now his, his little book on symbolic exchange of death in 76. But we could spend a whole episode talking about the beef between Leotard and, and Baudrillard because he goes pretty hard. Baudrillard goes pretty hard on Leotard in this chapter. And my only regret is that I wish he could have been more vicious to him the way that Leotard was pretty <laughs> fucking brutal to him in libidinal economy. More or less overtly calling him a racist, even though he's our brother, our racist brother, Jean <laughs> Baudrillard. And we've already discussed these arguments before, so I won't you know, go back over them. And I, I thought I had thought to reread the libidinal economy stuff to be ready for that. But I just think it's ground we've covered yeah. more than once. And right. I think that what's interesting is that I think Leotard is very spectacular and flashy in that accusation. So there is a restraint on Baudrillard's part. But I'm not so sure if Leotard proves what he asserts as much as indicates it, right? As much as <laughs> yeah, right. points out oofy problematic. And we, yeah. we've been saying that the whole time. Like, Beaujard, right. yeah, he's a little problematic, but can't deny that if it's not as uh, flashy as anti-Oedipus, if it's not as, you know, seductive as libidinal economy, there is this slow burn to the book that, that ignites into this incandescent, illumination throughout the book i think it is a kind of slow burn right he he has these little moments of of uh intense outbursts like we've already said earlier this my immediate and spectacular death right is the only way to enter into counter exchange and to give the counter gift but he ends on a provocative note about psychoanalysis and and marxism the freudo marxism and its and its failures and he seems to be that there's we're only now starting to see their crises for what they are. And there's still some more to come. Well, I think that we have uh, killed off symbolic exchange and death. We've put the name of Baudrillard. We've, we've, put we've spoken to the death. last word. Yeah, exactly. We've put Baudrillard to death and tried to, tried to give back to this, this gift he has given us. That's right. I still think this is probably... Baudrillard is most systematic and his most, if you wanted an intro book, Baudrillard's work, I think I'd be interested to hear your take on that, actually. But to me, I think this is, if you're looking for a systematic overview of a lot of the trajectories of what he does throughout his career, this is it. This is like the best entry point for me. Yeah, I'd say that. And for a critique of the political economy of the sign. Yeah, I think those two works together would be, would give you a good sense of the trajectory of the work. Maybe this work as, as you said, the systematic, sustained, serious work, as he kind of calls it. And the other, the other book I just mentioned four years earlier from 72, four right. 
for critique of the political economy of the sign, that would be kind of like a, a workbook or a handbook because it is made of these disparate essays, but they are at the forefront of yeah. some of the logic that he, he has sure. here. Yeah. And they help to get into the differences between use value, exchange value, sign exchange value, and symbolic exchange. I think that logic helps to helps one get into this work. So, you know, I, but a lot of the, the high notes that he hits in across his works, like about terrorism, as we said earlier, simulation, simulation, it's found here. So yeah, I agree with you. I think um, fatal strategies is another one that a later work that I'd like to look at with you. That's more, I think he goes, he goes more in a kind of, I won't say fully theory fiction, but it's, more so in that realm like it's this kind of hybrid he's kind of straddling the line between like hard philosophy i mean it's it's would be more like you would think of it as theory yeah theory fiction is is probably the closest you can come to describing it yeah that makes sense but there's some other stuff i think it'd be fun to look at maybe some of his dialogues maybe something like america for example yeah america some more off the beaten path stuff yeah i have a few of his works so I'd be down and many of them are, are, are much shorter. He, he starts writing these very concise works. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's a negative economy to his works. He's, he starts writing more like little booklets, but it's not necessarily a, a, a con. That's not, really, not necessarily a bad thing. Is there anything else you want to say about the, about the book or Baudrillard in general? He's a very frustrating, but exciting thinker to think with and he's challenging in ways that I haven't seen from, from other authors. Obviously the kind of trilogy of works we've tried to do and we're still doing with anti Oedipus, but this trilogy, this post 68 French kind of Freudo Marxist contrarian trilogy, each have their own stylistic difficulties and conceptual difficulties. And so it's been really fun to work through each of them and to, It'll be a book I have to come back to. As I said, finishing the book, I kind of felt like compelled to read through it again more carefully, or it's not even the right word, with a different type of attention, with a different type of emphasis to see what may have eluded me the first time. I guess the simulation stuff is is pretty strong. Maybe the strongest part of the book, at least for me, in terms of enjoyment or in relevance to our world today and then i guess laying out the you know the stuff about the spirit of terrorism following that line of logic as well yeah i definitely enjoy chapter five the longest chapter so political economy and death i think that that was one of the places where everything started to yeah come together and then in this chapter i think everything came together in a totally different way (laughs) so if anything he kept me on my toes the whole time reading in ways that Leotard didn't felt like Leotard demanded an attention to his written style. And I think Baudrillard lulls us. I do feel like he's more repetitive than the other thinkers. Right. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think he's, he's kind of hitting these refrains with little variations. There is a kind of musicality to his thinking and we can imagine the refrain is canceling out the verse. So maybe that's that's kind of an unexpected insight. It's stuff I have to dwell on. This is definitely a word <laughs> I'll have to dwell on and, and ruminate, right? I think that's another Nietzschean concept of this 
notion of ruminating and not immediately reacting to to a thought, to a series of thoughts, something to chew on and unpack, as we like to say, as always. But, you know, there's there's still a lot packed in there. I'm sure we'll return to Baudrillard's work in the future, but I think that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is this is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.